from the audio archives of the Bible Study Hour. The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals presents the classic teaching of the late Dr. James Montgomery Boyce. The death of Christ was not an atonement for sin abstractly, nor a mere expression of divine displeasure against iniquity, nor an indefinite satisfaction of divine justice, but instead a ransom price paid for the eternal redemption of a certain number of sinners and satisfaction for their particular sins. It's the glory of redemption that it does not merely render God placable and man pardonable, but that it has indeed reconciled sinners to God, put away their sins, and forever perfected his set-apart ones. Author, theologian, and pastor, Dr. James Montgomery Boyce began teaching on the Bible Study Hour in 1969. He went to be with his Lord in 2000, yet his biblical insights and in-depth teaching continue to encourage, equip, and edify believers. The goal of the Bible Study Hour is to prepare Christians to think and act biblically. On this edition of the Bible Study Hour, Dr. Boyce presents the message entitled, Why Did Jesus Christ Die? Be careful what you wish for. There's great wisdom in this familiar expression. Have you ever set your heart on something you wanted, pursued your goal, and achieved it, only to regret it later? Today we'll learn about a group of religious leaders who plotted to kill Jesus. Their plan succeeded beyond their wildest dreams, and yet this very success proved to be their ultimate destruction. God used their wicked scheme for His perfect purposes, to ultimately glorify Jesus Christ through the resurrection. The scripture text for this edition of the Bible Study Hour is John chapter 11, verses 51 and 52. Here now is Dr. James Montgomery Boyce with the message entitled, Why Did Jesus Christ Die? Why Did Jesus Christ Die? You may be surprised to discover what the Bible really teaches about Christ's death. Few doubt that he died. Of course, all men must die. Few doubt that he died by crucifixion. But why Jesus died or what his death means is a puzzle. The answer being of great importance is found throughout the Bible. In the illustrations provided by the Old Testament sacrificial system, in uh, prophecies such as Isaiah 53, in narrative, in explicit doctrinal teaching. But there are few verses that speak of the death of Christ as deeply and in as short a space as our text for this study. In this text, John says of the unwitting prophecy of Caiaphas, the high priest of Israel at the time of the death of Christ, and this he spoke not of himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for that nation, and not for that nation only, but that also he should gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. This is John's comment on Caiaphas's prophecy, it is expedient that one man should die for the people. It's interesting, and somewhat surprising, however, that a prophecy of the meaning of Christ's death should come from this source. For of all the self-seeking and ruthless men who must have made up the Sanhedrin in that year, Caiaphas must have been the most self-seeking and the most ruthless. 
Generally speaking, those who attended the council at which the decision was reached to kill Jesus immediately were just, well, just distressed and confused. They confessed that Jesus was doing many miracles. They expressed their fear that unless something was done, it was quite likely that all men would believe on him. But they did not know what to do. We could imagine them trying out various suggestions and then rejecting each one. There was one man in that group who did know his mind, however, and that man was Caiaphas. Others may have been confused, but Caiaphas at least was not. There is one thing to be done, he said. Never mind about the miracles, never mind about his teaching, never mind about his character. The man must die. For every minute that he lives, the danger to ourselves and our prerogatives is intensified. Well, Caiaphas expressed this in terms of the greater good of the people, of course. Politicians always speak along those lines. Nevertheless, his advice to the council was clearly pure self-interest and ruthless expediency. And it carried, for the decision was reached immediately to do away with Jesus. The amazing thing, however, is that John tells us that in giving his ruthless counsel, Caiaphas prophesied unwittingly. For, he says, being high priest that year, he prophesied. That is, unintentionally, Caiaphas foretold not only that Jesus would die, but also why he would die and the scope of his atonement. It does seem strange that the prophecy should come from such an evil source, but it doesn't remain strange when we look at it in the light of God's dealings with men throughout biblical history. McLaren, one of the great expositors of the New Testament, writes, Did not the Spirit of God breathe through Balaam of old? Is there anything incredible in a man's prophesying unconsciously? Did not Pilate do so when he nailed over the cross? This is the king of the Jews and wrote it in Hebrew and in Greek and in Latin, conceiving himself to be perpetuating a rude jest while he was actually proclaiming an everlasting truth. When the Pharisees stood at the foot of the cross and taunted him, he saved others himself he cannot save. Did not they too speak deeper things than they knew? And were not the lips of this unworthy, selfish, unspiritual, unscrupulous, cruel priest, so used that all unconsciously his words lent themselves to the proclamation of the glorious central truth of Christianity, that Jesus died for the nation that slew him and rejected him, and not for them alone, but for all the world. We learn from this that God uses even the wrath of men to accomplish his purposes. Indeed, Jesus may well have said to the unscrupulous high priest, as Joseph did to his brethren after he had revealed himself to them in Egypt, But as for you, ye thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good, to bring to pass as it is this day, to save many people alive. I need to add one more point before we go on. Some commentators have imagined that in verse 51, the evangelist shows himself to be an error, and that as a result, we have here one example of why the scriptures may not be considered entirely trustworthy. 
John says that Caiaphas was high priest that year. But they say the office of high priest was a permanent office, not an annual one. So John is mistaken, and the scriptures do contain errors. That is not what John means. John knew as well as anybody else that the high priests were appointed permanently. His point, therefore, is not that Caiaphas was high priest that year in the sense that someone else had been high priest the year before and that still another would be high priest in the year following. Rather, his point is that in that eventful year of the crucifixion of the Son of God, Caiaphas was high priest. You see the difference? If you do, then you also see the irony and the tragedy. For this was the year in which the great high priest forever came and stood by the earthly high priest, the reality by the shadow, and by his sacrifice of himself once and for all for sin, emptied the earthly priesthood and earthly sacrifices of all validity. Caiaphas? Caiaphas did not even know it. Consequently, he lost not only his place and his nation, but his office as well, which henceforth passed to that one who alone is worthy of it and who is able to execute it perfectly. But Caiaphas did prophesy concerning Christ's death. And in the first place, he told the nature of it. On the human side, it was a ruthless murder for political ends. The Sanhedrin, on the advice of Caiaphas, plotted to kill Christ in order that there might not be an uprising at the feast. This would endanger their privileges and power. Then Pilate consented to his death in order that he might not be accused of encouraging an insurrection or an insurrectionist. But from the divine side, which is conveyed to us in the prophecy, the death of Christ was much more than this. It was a vicarious sacrifice for sinners. That is, it was Christ taking their place, dying in their stead, taking upon himself the guilt and punishment of their sins, in order that there might be nothing left for them but God's heaven. We must admit, of course, that the view of the atonement which is expressed in this verse is incompatible with many modern ideas about God and the nature of salvation. For one thing, the idea of vicarious sacrifice is thought to be at odds with what we know about God. Isn't he a God of love, we are asked? How then can he require a sacrifice as the basis of man's salvation? Or again, why is one necessary? If God is love and if he is all-powerful, isn't it true that he can simply forgive men outright? Moreover, if this is so, then are we not justified in considering the idea of sacrifice merely a carryover from an outdated Hebraic worldview? Well, to these objections, we must answer that God is not only love. He is also a God of perfect holiness and justice. Therefore, salvation must take place in a way in which none of these attributes, including the holiness and justice of God, are violated. We're also told that the idea of a vicarious sacrifice is inadequate and immoral. It's inadequate, we're told, because the suffering of one man for only three hours, however intense, can never be equal to the eternal suffering of even one sinner in hell, not to mention a whole race of sinners. And it's immoral, our opponents add, for 
it's unjust of God to punish one man for others' sin. The answer to these objections is that they do not take into consideration who was dying, nor all that was involved in his sacrifice. Who was dying, after all? Not man, though Jesus was a man and had to be so to die, but God. Jesus is God, so God was dying. Moreover, it was because of the love and holiness of God that he was dying. One writer puts it like this, God is not only perfectly holy, but the source and pattern of holiness. He's the origin and upholder of the moral order of the universe. He must be just. The judge of all the earth must do right. Therefore, it was impossible by the necessities of his own being that he should deal lightly with sin and thus compromise the claims of holiness. If sin could be forgiven at all, it must be on some basis which would vindicate the holy law of God, which is not a mere code, but the moral order of the whole creation. But such vindication must be supremely costly. Costly to whom? Not to the forgiven sinner, for there could be no price asked from him for his forgiveness, both because the cost is far beyond his reach, and also because God loves to give and not to sell. Therefore, God himself undertook to pay a cost, to offer a sacrifice so tremendous that the gravity of his condemnation of sin should be absolutely beyond question even as he forgave it, while at the same time the love which impelled him to pay the price would be the wonder of angels and would call forth the worshipping gratitude of the redeemed sinner. On Calvary, this price was paid, paid by God, the Son giving himself, bearing our sin and its curse, the Father giving the Son, his only Son whom he loved. But it was paid by God, become man, who not only took the place of guilty man, but also was his representative. He offered himself as a sacrifice in our place bearing our sin in his own body on the tree. He suffered not only awful physical anguish, but also the unthinkable spiritual horror of becoming identified with the sin to which he was infinitely opposed. He thereby came under the curse of sin, so that for a time even his perfect fellowship with his Father was broken. Thus, God proclaimed his infinite abhorrence of sin by being willing himself to suffer all that in place of the guilty ones in order that he might justly forgive. Thus the love of God found its perfect fulfillment because he did not hold back from even that uttermost sacrifice in order that we might be saved from eternal death through what he endured. Well, let me pause here to ask whether this is your faith and whether or not you know that you have entered into a right relationship to God through Christ's sacrifice. Do you know that he did indeed die for you? Do you know that he took your place so that you might never have to suffer the consequences of your own sin and spiritual rebellion? Do you trust him as your own personal Savior? If you cannot answer yes to these questions, do not let this hour go by until you have put your trust in Jesus. 
the testimony of the entire word of God is that he was wounded for your transgressions, that he was bruised for your iniquities, that your chastisement was upon him in order that by his stripes you may be healed. There's more to the prophecy of Caiaphas than a mere statement of the nature of the atonement, however. For John goes on to say that his prophecy was that Jesus should die not for that nation only, but that also he should gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. This verse amplifies upon his previous statement, for having informed us of the nature of Christ's death, he now likewise informs us of the power and scope of it. On this point, Arthur Pink is so excellent that I cannot forbear quoting him. He writes this, the great sacrifice was not offered to God at random. The redemption price which was paid at the cross was not offered without definite design. Christ died not simply to make salvation possible, but to make it certain. Nowhere in Scripture is there a more emphatic and explicit statement concerning the objects for which the atonement was made. No excuse whatever is there for the vague, we should say unscriptural views now so sadly prevalent in Christendom concerning the ones for whom Christ died. To say that he died for the human race is not only to fly in the face of this plain scripture, but it is grossly dishonoring to the sacrifice of Christ. A large portion of the human race die unsaved, and if Christ died for them, then his death was largely in vain. This means that the greatest of all the works of God, is comparatively a failure. How horrible! What a reflection upon the divine character! Surely, men do not stop to examine where their premises lead them. But how blessed to turn away from man's perversions to the truth itself! Scripture tells us that Christ shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. So, no sophistry can evade the fact that these words give positive assurance that everyone for whom Christ died will most certainly be saved. Christ died for sinners, but everything turns on the significance of the preposition. What is meant by Christ died for sinners? To answer that Christ died in order to make it possible for God to righteously receive sinners who come to him through Christ is only saying what many heretics have affirmed. The testing of a man's orthodoxy on this vital truth of the atonement requires something far more definite than this. The saving efficacy of the atonement lies in the vicarious nature of Christ's death, in his representing certain persons, in his bearing their sins, in his being made a curse for them, in his purchasing them spirit and soul and body will not do to evade this by saying there is such a fullness in the satisfaction of Christ as is sufficient for the salvation of the whole world were the whole world to believe in him. That's true, but Scripture always ascribes the salvation of a sinner, not to any abstract sufficiency, but to the vicarious nature, the substitutional character of the death of Christ. The atonement, therefore, is in no sense sufficient for a man, unless the Lord Jesus died for that man. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. 
Well, then we ask, for whom did Christ die? For the transgression of my people was he stricken. Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. The Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, and to give his life a ransom for many. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people to make propitiation for the sins of the people? Here are seven passages which give a clear and simple answer to the question, and their testimony, both singly and collectively, declares plainly that the death of Christ was not an atonement for sin abstractly, nor a mere expression of divine displeasure against iniquity, nor an indefinite satisfaction of divine justice, but instead a ransom price paid for the eternal redemption of a certain number of sinners, and satisfaction for their particular sins. It's the glory of redemption that it does not merely render God placable and man pardonable, but that it has indeed reconciled sinners to God, put away their sins, and forever perfected his set-apart ones. You know, I'm also glad that John wrote, and not for that nation only, but also for the children of God that were scattered abroad. That includes representatives from among the Gentiles and from among our own time also. If Christ died only for an elect company from among the Jewish nation, he would have been just in doing that, for he did not need to die for anyone. If he had died only for people who lived in his own time and not for us, that would have been just too. But that is not the case. Jesus died in order that he might bring many sons into glory, among whom are men and women from every tongue and race and tribe and nation. These he is gathering. These he is still gathering. It may be that he is gathering you into the company of his people at this moment. Will you resist him? If so, why? Why should you resist him? He died for you. He loves you. In fact, he commends his love to you on the basis of the fact that he did in truth die for you. So receive him, yield to the sweet prodding of his spirit, and find that salvation which is indeed already complete in him and is to be the basis of your assurance before him forever.
And now, our Father, we thank you for this important text concerning the death of the Lord Jesus Christ for us. And we ask you to make it clear in our minds as the result of our study. If there are those listening who have never come to Christ as Savior, grant that their minds might be open to this truth and that they might see him as the one who gave himself for them and follow him. And upon your own people, may your grace and love and the communion of the Holy Spirit abide. In Christ's name, amen. So why did Jesus Christ die? What does his death mean for you? How you answer these questions affects every area of your life today and has eternal consequences as well. If you would like an audio copy of this edition of the Bible Study Hour, call us toll-free at 1-800-488-1888 and request the message entitled, Why Did Jesus Christ Die? or simply ask for message number 1325. You may also write to us at the Bible Study Hour at Box 2000, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 19103. This message and additional teachings by Dr. Boyce are accessible by visiting us online at www.alliancenet.org. And when you visit our website, or when you call or write, be sure to investigate and inquire about the many resources available from the Bible Study Hour and the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, including daily devotionals, information on upcoming conferences, and in-depth written and audio Bible studies including a vast number of studies by Dr. James Montgomery Boyce. Again, our contact information, write The Bible Study Hour, Box 2000, Philadelphia, PA, 19103. Call 1-800-488-1888. Visit us online at alliancenet.org. Your prayers, encouraging letters, and financial gifts all enable the Bible Study Hour to continue its outreach ministry. Once more, today's edition of the Bible Study Hour is entitled, Why Did Jesus Christ Die? Message number 1325. Thanks for utilizing the Bible Study Hour to be a part of your Christian growth. Join us again as the teaching of Dr. James Montgomery Boyce prepares us to think and act biblically.